Hey everyone, just popping on here real quick to give a bit of a trigger warning. I didn't realize that there was going to be uh, some mentioning of the Robert Picton case. Um, so there is mention of murder in this episode and assault. So I just want to put that out there. Um, if you uh, want to skip forward past the half an hour mark, you should be safe. Thanks so much. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Stripped by Sia, your podcast for strippers, sex workers, and all the fancy naked people in between. Welcome back. Uh, I guess welcome back to me because I haven't podcasted in a long time, but you as a listener might not know that because everything is just week by week, uh, new episodes every single Sunday, and I've actually been on vacation in Europe for the past little bit, so this is my first episode back, so apologies if I am being weird or if I'm stumbling in my words. It's been a hot minute, but the break was much, much, much deserved, and I'm feeling refreshed and just really um, inspired again in terms of like getting on some new great guests for this season, as well as some tackling some new topics um, and stuff as well. So all in the spirit of sex work, um, sex worker rights, um, decriminalizing sex work. This is basically what the show is all about, especially in terms of destigmatization. So if you're new here, I, um, I'm Steph Sia, aka Kimchi, on stage. I will be on stage this week at Shaker's Show Lounge. Please come out and say hi. Um, come by dance with me or come by dance with me and tell me how much you love the show. I've had people do that. It's been awesome. Um, I am a stripper. I'm a content creator. I have been doing this podcast for the past three years, talking about my experiences in sex worker, sex, sex worker land, I guess, and bringing on different guests to provide um, really transparent uh, perspectives when it comes to sex work because our work is really just misconstrued. Um, people don't understand it. People don't understand us. And yeah, I'm just trying to do my own part in terms of like breaking down barriers. So that's just a little bit about me. Um, I just want to do a quick little shout out to my Patreon subscribers. So the usual, we have people in the top tier and second tier here. We have Snoo Snoo all the way from Germany. We have Jay Sunsern right here in British Columbia, Canada. Uh, Justin Erickson, who is from Washington. Hello, hello. Rob Sarkar, who is also from BC. And we've got some new subscribers. I actually don't know where you're from, but hello to Selena Money and Ted McGuire. Thank you both so much for, I guess, subscribing and supporting the show. Um, the website is technically alive. I just have a lot of work to do and kind of um, debating on where to go from there in terms of if I want to do all the work myself or outsource at the moment because it's a lot of work, but that's where all your money is going. That's what's keeping this alive. Um, I just want to say thank you to that. There's also different tiers that you can subscribe to lower than that, um, all for the price of a coffee. So check it out. It's patreon.com slash stripped by Sia. And of course, another big shout out to skyhawkafterdark.tv. I'm also a part of this collective of adult industry 
vidcasts and podcasters. Um, they're doing some really great, amazing things. So check it out at skyhawkafterdark.tv. Okay, enough of all the things like that. Hello and welcome. I am so excited to start interviewing today. It's just been so long and I wanted to introduce our guest for today. First of all, the topic today is going to be an interesting one and I'm really excited to collaborate with this person. So this person actually contacted me, I guess, a few months ago. Maybe it was over the summer. I can't even remember what the timeline was anymore, but um, basically this person contacted me and wanted to collaborate with me in some some sort of way. So we did that on her end and I'm just like, well, of course you have to come on to the show because I would love to love for you to talk about everything that you're doing in the world um, when it comes to allyship. So this episode is about allyship and especially within the academia sphere. Um, Of course, if you have been listening to the show for a long time, you'll know that I've brought on, you know, different professors from various schools of thought and schools across Canada and the USA. So this is going to be a different kind of perspective. Um, And of course, if you are in the community, you'll know that a lot of sex workers have PhDs, very, very very smart, intelligent human beings. Um, So I just really want to share this perspective because um, the guest who's coming on today um, is really passionate about sex work advocacy. And this person is not a sex worker, is not, I guess, part of the community, quote unquote. Um, So I feel like sometimes it can be really intimidating for people that want to get involved and just don't know how to get involved, don't know where to start. So she'll be drawing on her own experiences uh, as a PhD candidate and, you know, how harmful sometimes academia can actually be towards sex workers um, when they're really trying to support and do research and do the good that way. But sometimes the way that they conduct research can be damaging. So we were gonna, we are going to be talking about topics like that a little bit today and just in general how you can be a better ally and how you can actually support sex workers and remove your bias. So enough of me talking. I want to bring on the sex work historian, a.k.a. Ivania, on to the show today. Ivania, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hi. Hi. <laughs> that was such Hi. a long intro. <laughs> A good intro, and I'm sure as you can remember from our collaboration, my intro was not short. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all good. But um, if it's okay with you, I would actually like to start with a land acknowledgement before I get into a little bit of, or get into some of about myself and totally. introduce myself. Absolutely. And and like for those who are listening um, and who are those for those who are not based in Canada, where this podcast is based out of um, land acknowledgments are really, really important, especially in our country. And Ivania, would you be able to share a few words for those who don't know what a land acknowledgement is and the significance, maybe the importance of it? Sure, of course. So in Canada and the United States, and as far as I know, parts of Australia as well, because land acknowledgements actually originated in Australia, but they originated from um, Indigenous communities there as a way to say, hey, settlers, acknowledge that you're on stolen land. And so that's essentially what land acknowledgements are. Now, they are important to do, but as as a side note here, you have to accompany these with action. 
So I highly recommend, in addition to, you know, situating yourself on the land you currently reside on, also possibly maybe donating to movements such as Land Back or Idle War, which focus specifically on decolonizing. So just taking the land back, literally, <laughs> um, well, not like literally, you know, land back doesn't mean kicking people off the land. It just means giving the indigenous peoples of this land the respect and dignity they are owed on this land. And of course, giving them a say in what we do with this land as well. So that's all that means. So I highly recommend, in addition to that, actually donating to these movements and other local organizations. But yes, in many Canadian academic and public offices, land acknowledgements are common-ish practice, and they're supposed to, for those who need to, because not everyone on this land is on stolen land. It is stolen land, but not everyone on this land is on stolen land. So it's time for us who need to, to recognize their position on the land that they currently reside on and what this means for the indigenous peoples of that land. I want to acknowledge that I'm currently advocating with, advocating with, and alongside others on a land that is not mine. From the food I eat, to the roof over my head, to my access to electricity, I have, especially as a cis white woman, benef benefited from the displacement of indigenous peoples of what some call Turtle Island or North America. I acknowledge my presence on the traditional territory of many indigenous nations, the area I currently occupy, known as Toronto or Toronto, has been caretaken by the Anishinaabeg Nation, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Huron-Wendat. It is now home to many First Nation, Inuit, and Métis communities. I'd also like to acknowledge the current treaty holders, which are the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Canada was, and quite frankly still is, built, literally built, on stolen land, stolen culture, and especially stolen children. This rather blatant and painful reality should no longer be ignored by those who not only benefit the most from it, but have the power to do something about it. No more. It's time for land back. Excellent. The, oh, thank you. And in the spirit of acknowledging, October is also Women's History Month in Canada. Now, listeners, can we maybe connect two and two together between the land acknowledgement <laughs> and take this time to acknowledge, of course, not just, unfortunately, the atrocities committed historically and contemporarily against Indigenous and femme persons specifically here in Canada, but also to acknowledge their humanity and triumph and the, the fully fledged human beings they are, just as we should be acknowledging that for every woman during Women's History Month. Myself and yourself included, Steph. So happy Women's History Month to us. Amazing. <laughs> and I know it's like the last two days of October, and we, we were supposed to record this earlier and stuff too, but um, you know, it's not better late than never. And also, thank you for the beautiful land acknowledgement. Maybe that's something I should start adopting um, and something I have to do as well. Like for, for me, I sit on um, a board uh, for one of the sex work organizations too, and we have to do um, land acknowledgements or like it's encouraged that we do that. And I've had to lead a couple of those. And, you know, sometimes I just like don't even know when I'm, it's hard for me to gather my thoughts um, at that time. But like, you know, th yours really, really inspiring. So 
thank you for that. And, you know, since we're at it, I will also say that I am residing, working, and playing on the Kakite First Nations land, which is also known as New Westminster in British Columbia. Um, a lot of you listeners, you know, in the greater so-called Vancouver area, uh, the Tsleil-Waututh uh, and Squamish People's First Nations land. That uh, is also, you know, something that I need to practice more as well. So thanks for bringing this up and maybe this will be a thing on future episodes. So thank you for that, Ivania. But I would love the, the audience to get to know you a bit better as well. Um, I did speak a little bit about your background, but really brief. I knew that you were a PhD candidate, but please tell us what you're studying, what you, what you hope to achieve with this, and just a little bit of backstory on you. Okay. Wow. You think I'd be better at introducing myself by now because I've been trying to do this more, but alas, here we are. So hi, <laughs> my name is the sex work historian, but I also go by Ivanya. Um, pronoun she, her. I'm a dog person, human rights advocate, historian and PhD candidate, blogger, opinionated and usually right. <laughs> I'm sure you can tell by that. Humble as pie. <laughs> But in terms of what, very humble, just radiating off of me right now. But um, in terms of what I study, my specialties are actually 20th century Canadian history, 19th and 20th century women and gender history, or women, gender, and feminist. The name is ever evolving. Yes. <laughs> and 20th century North American indigenous history. But my passion and the core of my blog is sex work advocacy and history and how that history connects to the histories I study and not just the histories I study, but also how that then connects the past to the present and the present to the past. Because guess what? Um, sex workers also face, let's say, for example, misogyny and racism and classism, but they also face it through a lens of whorephobia, which for all of us, for all of our listeners out there, whorephobia is basically just a very fancy way of saying a hatred of sex workers specifically. So they face all that in addition to hatred, society hating sex workers. So mm -hmm. yay hooray, not yay hooray, but yay hooray for the extra, the extra layers on top of everything else that everyone has to deal with all the time. <laughs> so many layers there. And like, it's so, so interesting. I mean, like you, I mean, going through the history and like, history in Canada and also indigenous history and also history with sex workers. There's a lot of that which is combined and layered and just related and stuff too. Like I'm really curious in terms of like the sex worker advocacy part, like where did that first start for you or like when did you become interested in that particular subject? Oh, well, how much time do we have? <laughs> because this may be a bit of a long one, okay. but I'm going to try to be as concise as possible. So actually, I got interested in learning more about sex work advocacy and history when I was about 17. So when I was about 17, um, I think it was my English teacher at the time 
she was tired of assigning Shakespeare, which don't blame her. So <laughs> instead of assigning Shakespeare, she assigned Maggie DeVries missing Sarah. Okay. Now, for everyone who hasn't read the book, Maggie DeVries book Missing Sarah. It's a memoir written by Maggie in dedication to her sister, Sarah DeVries. Now, Sarah DeVries, unfortunately, was one of the women found on, I do not name him because naming gives something power and it gives something life. And as a murderer and a rapist, he does not deserve life. So I'm just going to call him a certain pig farm killer. So the pig farm killer here in Canada. Gotcha. Um, unfortunately, she was one of the women found on the farm. And Maggie wrote this memoir in dedication of her and sort of to, I guess, not just work through her own grief, but also to explain this horrific, horrific case. Because the pig farm case largest serial killer case in Canada and the most yes. disgusting. Yeah. Heinous, heinous crime. Yes. Heinous crime took place in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Oh, just really, really bad. Yeah. I can't mm. talk about it. But- Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's a huge, huge, huge case. Um, happened in Coquitlam, which is not too far from my house. But the victims were all from the downtown east side, which is probably the worst uh, couple blocks in all of Canada. It's a really rough uh, neighborhood, lots of mentally ill people that are down there, homeless, uh, lots of social housing issues and stuff there, Um, just a lot. But um, if anyone's interested in the name of this person, I mean, if you Google Canada Pig Farm – killer murders that it'll come up right away so sorry to interrupt oh no it's okay and thank you for explaining that because I'm never quite sure how much detail to give on this case and it's always hard as a side note when explaining cases like this because as you know more often than not in general when it comes to serial killers they are more glorified than they ever should be yeah but especially when it comes to sex workers and in this case indigenous sex workers yes their names become obscured and they are not the names I want obscured. In fact, if I can name some of these women now, I would like to. Sure. As a form of acknowledgement. Absolutely. So instead of giving Pigman any more time of day, because amongst many other things, he deserves to fade into obscurity. Yes. Because he is still living and breathing and the women he took from this world are not. And that is the biggest tragedy of all. So I'm going to name their names that have been officially named. Don Cray, so I named Don Cray, Sarah DeVries, Serena Abbotsway, Diana Melnick, Mona Wilson, Andrea Josbury, Brenda Wolf, Georgina Pappen, and Marnie Frey. Now those are the official nine women that, because officially nine charges were held against him yes. from 26, it went down from 26 to nine, and he claimed to have taken the lives of 49 women. So considering the way that sex workers are treated in the downtown east side, especially by police, I hate to say it, but I probably would be inclined to believe it's a much higher number. Oh, absolutely. I would like to name those women because he took their lives. 
Totally. And, and just a note on that, like, I mean, these types of crimes against sex workers, especially those um, survival sex workers down on the on the downtown east side, like, that goes severely underrepresented. Severely, severely. So, yeah, I would also imagine that number to be much higher. Yeah. And, uh, again, another side note, since the 80s, since the late 70s, um, the number of missing sex workers, I mean, across the country, but particularly in Vancouver, had been on the increase. And Vancouver police, since that time, have done nothing about it. The downtown east side has, has been in a missing sex worker crisis since the late 70s, early 80s, and police consistently refuse to do something about it. And because of that police dismissal, in addition to more often than not them being the brutalizers themselves, um, is part of the main reason as to why a certain pig farm killer had an alleged nearly 20 year spree. So crazy. We really, that's something people need to think about Absolutely. very heavily. Mm-hmm. But to a group of 17 year olds, my English teacher assigned this memoir. And Sarah, I couldn't relate to a lot of the personal experiences Sarah had. First and foremost, I have never engaged in sex work, let alone on-street sex work in the roughest part of Vancouver, probably honestly one of the most criminalized parts of this country. Yeah. The downtown side. It's so being a cis white woman, um, Sarah herself was of Afro-Indigenous descent. I obviously couldn't relate to that because, well. Canada is built both on anti-Indigenous and anti-Black racism, and quite frankly, as a nation, vehemently hates both Black and Indigenous women. So I couldn't relate to that. Um, I couldn't, again, relate to being a sex worker working in the downtown east side in the 90s. And again, too, as a side note, um, going back to the anti-Indigenous racism in this country, Sarah herself in the book struggled a lot with her own identity. I think in on a lot of that because she was an, a 60 scoop survivor. So for those of you who don't know the 60 scoop here in Canada, it's quite literally what it sounds like during the sixties, mostly white, mostly white um, childcare and government workers were quite literally go into indigenous communities and just scoop children. Um, for claims of quote, poor parenting, more often than not having to relate to, oh, nutritional needs and, you know, material needs and aren't being met and also accuse them more often than not of being alcoholics, um, Gosh. which all of those are deeply rooted in anti-Indigenous racism. Yes. All racism. Of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they were quite literally scoop these babies and put them into white homes, <laughs> specifically white homes. So, right. yeah. So different she, time back then. Different time, and yet it's still happening today. Correct. <laughs> with the, yeah, with the child welfare system today, the scoop never stops. <laughs> Gosh. So I couldn't relate to that, but and especially Sarah's own struggle with her identity because Canada's adoption system literally, I think it was until probably, and don't quote me on this, could have been mid-70s, maybe 80s, uh, was a closed adoption system. So she didn't have access to her records. 
Um, mm. And of course, being a scoop baby, she wouldn't really have access to those, unfortunately, those records anyway. Right. So she very much struggled with her identity and, of course, being an Afro-Indigenous woman adopted into a white family. So I couldn't relate to that. But as a 17-year-old girl, I could relate to the feeling of wanting to know your place in the world and just wanting to be treated with kindness and humanity because mm -hmm. it's hard being a 17-year-old girl. <laughs> so I just remember wanting to grab her and hug her when I read the book, but I knew I couldn't because she was gone. And she was mm -hmm. gone just because she was a sex worker. And that was the first time in my life I had realized that this world is profoundly unfair. And yeah. since then, I had kind of dedicated myself to, I guess, trying to level the scales and in particular, really focusing on sex work history and advocacy because this, of Sarah, because this case in general is so horrendous and horrific mm -hmm. that it just makes you want to kind of cry and scream and go, this isn't fair. It's not right because it's not fair and mm -hmm. it's not right. So then I ended up writing a bunch of papers on it in my undergrad. And then for my graduate degree, I focused on Vancouver's on street sex trade from about 1980 to 2000 for my MA thesis. And now for my PhD, I'm actually focusing on Toronto's on street sex trade. Um, wow. I'm just in the middle of my research for that right now. So I don't have much on that yet, but I'm, I'm focusing on that. But the reason I really wanted to start the blog is in part really, I don't want to say it's a dedication to Sarah because she has had family that have done better than I could ever at making sure her legacy is well remembered and remembered in the way it should be. But mm -hmm. most certainly a dedication to Sarah and all the other women I've mentioned, you know, Dawn and Diana and Mona and Andrea and Brenda and Georgina and Marty and everyone else who I haven't listed as well. It's a dedication to them to say that there are people who care about you, people who may not have known you, but care that you're gone because they know that you should be here. And also started it because quite frankly, I was able to get this far in my degree without ever having to interact with any sex worker ever mm -hmm. in any capacity. And that hasn't sat right with me because granted, when I did the MA, it was a year long program. Mm -hmm. So you can only interact with communities so much in a year. And of course, I'm not just going to go in and say, hey, you want to help me write my MA thesis? <laughs> like I'm not going to walk in and start causing a bunch of irreparable damage for a paper like I'm not going to do that but by mm -hmm. the same token I've been able to get this far without talking to anybody and that doesn't sit right with me and not just that but I've gotten grants from the work I've done without ever having to interact with any sex worker ever and it's all benefited me without really doing what I set out to do which is I mean again sex workers as you well know do not need me to advocate for them but I would very much like if you would have me to advocate alongside you. And I can't do that if I'm not working with you and I'm just getting grant money and it not being used in some way. That's right. like not about me. <laughs> if oh, that God. makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense. And you said a lot of profound things here too. I mean, just like you've 
studied us <laughs> for so long without having many interactions with any of them. And that, that to me, like that statement is, is already really telling and um, kind of goes into the topic today, um, talking about academia and talking about like, I don't know, responsible academia. Is that even a term? Like, how do you it do that? Be. It should be, right? Like, because, like, you know, I, I don't know, like, what when this started, or maybe it's been a topic for some years. And of course, with the professors that I've had on the show, like Tamara Doherty and, um, gosh, who am I, who am I, Tulia Law, like, so many people that have been studying sex work and have been allies for decades. Um, sex work has been like such a hot topic. And, oftentimes or maybe this is just my own observation sometimes I just feel like we are like just a topic for so many researchers and people in academia so like how and like I always hear and there's old call outs from said master students or people doing their PhD call outs for you know, we're looking for participants, uh, people like that work in sex work. Uh, we're looking for escorts. We're looking for this. We're looking for that. People have lived experience. And sometimes I feel like there is a disservice or like, I don't want to say exploitation, but just like maybe some kind of like ignorance in terms of like how to conduct their research in a responsible way. Maybe I'm just rambling on at this point, but do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> I understand exactly. And no, you used the right word. It's exploitation. Because surprise, surprise, the Academy runs on labor exploitation. <laughs> Which I'm sure a lot of I'm I'm sure a lot of our PhD listeners, especially our sex work PhD listeners, know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. The Academy is an institution as much as it does produce great theory, in particular Black feminist, Indigenous feminist, decolonization theory, um, is also patriarchal, is mm -hmm. also classist, is yeah. also ableist, is also racist. <laughs> yes. It's everything under the sun. And it runs, I hate to say it, actually, you know what, I don't, I don't care. It, run, <laughs> it, it runs on the exploitation of various labor. And mm -hmm. I can attest to that firsthand, being a TA, not a lot of, like, tutorial assistant. So I work under a professor, and I do essentially the grunt work. So I host tutorials, I do grading, I attend lectures, I do all these little tasks and I'm grossly underpaid, and I'm grossly overworked. And they yeah. expect you to do all that to fit. They say it's 10 hours a week. It's usually 15. So they expect you to do 15 or more hours a week for 10 hours of pay. And granted, you can, quote, pay, you know, put yourself forward for overtime, but then you got to go through the union, which I'm happy to have a union, but I don't want to deal with my union. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> or things that I should be paid for. So it is very much, as you said, Steph, kind of an exploitation because then you have people coming to you, whether they realize it or not, with that internalized sort of like 
it's that internalized labor exploitation where then they're coming to you and they're going, oh, can I have your time without necessarily realizing that time is money? Quite yeah. literally under capitalism, which is you well know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's so many parallels there too, along with like, you know, exploitation in within academia, but also within sex work itself too. You know, you have your clients trying to be like, well, another provider quoted me this much and this is how much her rate is or you know can't like if i'm making a custom video like oh well like another creator that i follow only charges x amount for their custom videos why is yours more expensive and like trying to just bargain with me <laughs> and stuff like that too so it's i, I understand where you're coming from <laughs> which is ridiculous because you don't like my prices, take it up with my manager. I am not in control over who charges what. <laughs> I charge what I charge and that is fine and that is valid. And someone else charges what they charge and that is fine and that is valid. Your problem <laughs> is with capitalism, it's not with me. <laughs> but yeah, just the expectation of, I wouldn't, even with the best of intentions, I think what you're alluding to is probably in a lot of these reaching outs and a lot of these emails, it is probably almost like an expectation of you just giving your time, mm -hmm. you know, whether that be even for like a consultation or whether that be like, Oh, can we discuss this over coffee or something? Yes. You know, I'm sure you've probably gotten those emails. <laughs> Many of those emails. <laughs> Which I mean, when I've reached out, I've asked if it's okay with the person I'm reaching out to, you know, I'm more than happy just to keep continuing over email or if you would like, if it's okay to have a call like we did when we first met, like the Zoom call and then work out how we're going to, you know, just to work out how this is going to work reciprocally, whether that be monetarily or whether that be, okay, well, I maybe necessarily can't pay you right now, but you want a shout out or something like some form of compensation. The best yes. form is always money. But if you're both cool <laughs> with like a shout out or something, like just some something reciprocal that is a little bit more tangible. Yeah, and that has value. Just get coffee. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. And that happens a lot too, right? And like you said something interesting too, like um that's what the expectation is that we are just expected to give up our time for free. And like along with some of the other notions that you mentioned, like what academia is rooted in, like that really affects people's perspectives and really creates a bias. And I'm just curious in terms of like, you know, when you are trying to become a better ally, you are needing to then drop those biases. But people ask, how do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, and I think it can be really difficult because a lot of these things, if you're, you're staying in academia for so long, because a PhD program can run anywhere from five to six years. So yeah. I did my undergrad. So that was at least five for me. And then the one year MA, so six. And now I'm year three of my PhD now. So what, nine years entrenched in this system? There's a lot you don't realize you learn and that you have to unlearn. And mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's a privilege to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's less of a privilege when you're facing sexism and racism head on. So you know what, deal with that first <laughs> before you start <laughs> telling me and my colleagues it's a privilege to be here. Yeah, it is. But also like this is exploitative. So calm down. <laughs> oh gosh. So take a step, sorry. So take a step down. <laughs> 
But yeah, so when you're approaching people, you do have to realize that, oh crap, I'm coming from an institution that as much as it is producing good work, as much as we do have ethics, ethics processes in place, these same processes are made by these institutions that themselves, as I said, are heavily sexist and racist and ableist and classist. So you have to realize that these aren't always the best measures mm-hmm. for ethics, and they're not always going to be applicable to every situation. So I right. think here, the really important thing is like actually active listening, not just yeah. pretend listening, because in academia, you have to do a lot of pretend listening because you're always thinking. And because you're always thinking, you always have to be on your toes to sound smart for the next time you have to open your mouth. (laughs) Because we're always talking, we're always chatting. But in doing that, we're not always listening. But when you're talking to people, sex worker or otherwise, and they're telling you something important, sex work related or otherwise, you can't be flap, flap, flapping your gums. You got to sit there and you got to say, okay, I'm actively listening to you. For those of you who can't see what I'm doing, I'm fake <laughs> mouthing and I'm pulling at my ear. So, so I have to actively listen and keep the mouth closed. And when people say something, say, okay, don't just go, okay, and then do whatever you want. No, <laughs> or don't just go, okay, and say, but we don't do it this way. Well, you're coming from a pretty fundamentally flawed place. So maybe we should do it differently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. Being an active listener is is so important, and not just in t- like talking with with sex workers, people from the community, but like just in general. Like, um, I, I feel like people don't do that enough, and it to me is so important because you can kind of tell when people are just like yammering on and on, and like not really just taking in what you're saying. I'm like, did you just hear what I said? Like, because you completely missed the point. And I feel like that happens a lot because people are just, as you mentioned, thinking about what they're going to say next or how they're going to counter that argument and whatnot. But then by doing that, you are just missing an opportunity to hear something that's really important. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the show, our voices are unheard as sex workers. And this is why I kind of do the show to help get our voices out and to get our real stories told so active listening yes check to that I agree <laughs> and unheard not because you're not speaking no 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 you plenty you're speaking and plenty you're speaking very loudly unheard because a lot of people got wax in their ears <laughs> they don't seem to be again actively listening to the thousands of people screaming very basic facts and lived reality at them saying hey for example we should probably decriminalize sex work because it should be decriminalized because quite frankly, criminalization is death. Uh-huh. In some instances, uh-huh. it quite literally is. So you know what? Wax out of ears and listen. Yes. Not to the tune in your head, but to what people are telling you. Oh, and as, a, and as a great side note to that, I have been working on other projects with other sex workers' rights organizations and sex workers themselves. And I was really worried about not coming in with a plan because in academia, unless you literally come in with the funding and the plan and everything ready to go, all you really need is a signature on the paper, then it doesn't go through. They're just Mm -hmm. kind of just get the, oh, well, you should work on this more. 
but I went in and I had a plan, but it was kind of a messy plan. And we workshopped some things together and I felt so bad. And I almost kind of apologized after. And I said, I basically wanted to say, you know, sorry that that was such a mess, but I was told, you know what, don't worry about it. And actually the best thing you can do is come to sex workers with like a half, I don't want to say half baked, but like a half baked idea. So you can work on it together. Cause more mm-hmm. often than not, people don't come to this community with things that we can work on and make together. They just come with a yes or no type of deal. And in academia, you have to come in, at least from what I've experienced, a yes or no. Right. But then again, as I said, the way academia runs itself is pretty fundamentally flawed. But then again, the way society <laughs> runs itself is pretty fundamentally flawed. So when I heard that, I was like, actual community building, like actually letting people talk and let's figure it out together. And if it's messy, it's messy. And if you're willing to work on this with me, I'm willing to work on this with you. And that's the most important thing, like actual options and making people feel like they have actual options and not like they're your dissertation and you're my thesis. You're not changing. Yes. No, no, no. People are not thesis, thesis eyes, thesis, thesis, people and things will change and that is okay. Well, that's really interesting for you to mention that because like that, I think that's important to say because you want to have, or you want to be able to have the opportunity to actually have a true collaboration and for you to, as you mentioned, to work on whatever you're working on together, not just like, okay, I need you to fill in and bring me what you know, and that's it. Because that to me is really one-sided and there's no real engagement there. There's no real collaboration and you're not really involving the person, in this case, a a sex worker in like your research. So I'm so glad you brought that up because I feel like sometimes that point is often missed. (laughs) Many, many times. If someone is willing to give you their time, which is precious, then take it. Don't just say, it's done. I just need your signature here, here, and here. No. See, I always thought that was wrong, but then academia is like, no, no, no. Signature here, here, and here. I'm like, okay, that still feels weird. But then when I went to like actual human beings, (laughs) they were like, no, we want to work with you. It's fine. Let let it get messy. It's okay. We got (laughs) a million and one things to do. We're running an organization. We're working full time. Like, Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but also like another point that you're mentioning, um, like when we were discussing this pre-recording, but also like talking about like learning from those who have been in this industry longer. And like your point was like not doubling down. Do you want to kind of go into that point? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so in this environment, in the academic environment, from what I've experienced, Again, this changes depending on like what you study and where you study. So I am talking specifically from Western perspective, English centered. So just being English speaking colonial language in the Western Western world already differs from a lot of other places that produce academic knowledge that are further away from quote, the knowledge centers, which is mostly Britain, Canada and the US. <laughs> right, yes, correct. Yeah. So my my experiences may differ than than from some others. But from what I've encountered in academia, you have to constantly defend yourself. You're constantly when I actually do my dissertation, you have something called a dissertation defense. I will literally have to defend my work 
in front of a committee, in front of a crowd of people ready to judge <laughs> your work right <laughs> in front of you. So That's terrifying. <laughs> It's usually fine. Sometimes it's a formality, but sometimes it's not. So it's not as fun. (laughs) (laughs) So it it can be terrifying. And, you know, during conferences and when you write your papers and stuff, it's called critique. So people go over, they review it and critique it. But you also have to remember, too, that this critique sometimes itself can be rooted in that same sexism and racism and ableism. And... The critique in academia, as a lot of academics can attest to, it can be mean. (laughs) Academics can be really mean. So you're in this environment where you're constantly having to defend yourself for everything, for everything you do. So of course, when someone, whether the critique be valid or not, broaches you, and whether you realize it or not, you're kind of on the defensive. Because you kind of have to be, because you constantly have to justify your existence and your work. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And I know not, and I'm not saying like a lot of my colleagues themselves are defensive, but in terms of having to defend your existence, I know a lot of, especially my indigenous, my female indigenous colleagues are like, yup, every day, <laughs> defending our existence in here every day. So you get on the defensive and I, I mean, in life, that's not the way to go. But I think, especially when dealing with certain communities, especially the sex work community who they themselves have to be defensive of you. <laughs> I was just going to say that. I was literally just going to say that. <laughs> you have to be defensive of you coming in as an academic. You can't have the double down response. So I recently did a, a blog post for September where I talked about Canada's current sex work legislation and I related it back to its predecessor. So the Protected Communities, the Protected Communities and Exploited Persons Act or Bill C-36 is essentially, I argue in this post, is the same as its predecessor, Bill C-49. The only real differences, uh, one was made in 2014 and one was made in 1985. (laughs) They're pretty much the same law, and I'm not going to go into it because I, shameless plug, do have my entire blog post on it. (laughs) In that post, I had misquoted someone, um, an organization I should not have misquoted, and when I tweeted, you know, did my little tweet going, oh, my blog post is out the Canadian sex work law reform, which they are at the forefront of leading the charge against uh, Bill C-36, which actually was brought up to the Ontario courts October 3rd to 7th. So fingers crossed it's going to be challenged because they're challenging it for the unconstitutional law it is. So hopefully it will be abolished and revised. Let's just say abolished. Fingers, uh, we're still waiting on it. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Both means separate. Like, yes, please. <laughs> in the video, which you can't see, but unless you're on Patreon, the video that you- <laughs> we're, we're crossing our fingers. Yeah, we're crossing our fingers. We're both like, oh, get rid of this damn law. <laughs> get rid of this damn law. Um, but actually, on the Canadian Sex Work Law Reform website, they have everything um, on this constitutional challenge, so they can also explain that better than I can. So please go onto their website and look at the challenge uh, there. But they politely told me, um, this information isn't correct, ma'am. <laughs> mm. My first response was, oh, well, I didn't mean it this way. So my initial response was a slight double down. But then when I read through what they had told me, I was like, no, you are completely correct. <laughs> um, I am so sorry. 
This is why it's so important to listen to those more experienced than you. So then I promptly went back and I changed that section of the post and I actually added in because um, I really didn't touch on third party providers in my post too much. So I actually added in their work on third party providers. So that's now a little note in my post as well. But to make a very long story short, when someone says you made a whoopsie, this is very important that this should be addressed, you address it. And especially because they didn't need me coming in there because this was, I think, middle of September. They did not need me coming in there two weeks before their constitutional challenge being like, yuck, 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 look what I did. <laughs> yeah. Please, Canadian sex work law reform. I did not come in with disrespect. It really was a mistake on my part, but I understand you really did not need my perky little ass running in there going, look at me. <laughs> Wow. Well, you know what? Good for you for owning up to that. Because like sometimes people just get so defensive um, when they're being corrected. And I see this a lot on Twitter too, like when people are trying to correct sex workers on like how to do their job or like even just like statements like that. Like it can be really tiresome, (laughs) I want to say, you know. So like just drawing another parallel there too, like it's important to like, again – adopt what you were saying earlier, actively listen to what these people are saying, but also for those who have more tenure and more experience than you, you, you know, they, you might want to listen to what they have to say because there is a lot of, there can be a lot of merit in the information that they're trying to convey. And so. it was, I mean, it wasn't a small error. It was a big error on my part. This happened to be the section where I was talking about how colonization impacts all of Canada's laws and especially, you know, bills C-49 and C-36. Um, and it particularly as it relates to Indigenous sex workers, now the points I raised were correct, but I cited the Native Women's Association of Canada, which was egregious on my part because they have historically used certain talking points, despite being the Native Women's Association of Canada, against particularly in, in the sex workers. They have themselves an anti-sex work. And they actually spoke against, um, or sorry, they spoke for the pro C36 side when it was being developed and they were having like different, I don't know if trials are the right word around. I don't know if they're called pre-trials. I'm sorry, I'm not a lawyer, (laughs) but I know there was something around there and they were actually on the side promoting it. Um, and of course, Canadian sex work law reform, they themselves have said too, they've historically done this, but they, and like myself, I echo this, hope that the Native Women's Association of Canada does change their mind because sex work does not negate one's indigeneity. And there are plenty of Indigenous sex workers out there that could use that support. So Correct. Good, good. I mean, good for you. And that's, I think, thank you for the example too, because, and something for that's like super recent and something that happened to you that, that can be really vulnerable to share something like that, especially when you make a mistake. Like people just want to like brush it off or not really, again, take ownership of it. So thanks for being brave about that. Um, another point that you um, mentioned again in our notes, um, just talking about funding or sometimes lack thereof when it comes to. <laughs> academia and like something I had touched on earlier too was just like you know call for participants and there 
it being no like incentive, but like, and it's not about the incentive. It's not just about being paid, but it's also it's mo- mostly like the time and like how valued the information that we have and like the willingness for us to share that. Um, that to me is what's more important about an honorarium. So I feel like an appropriate way for those who, who are in academia is to provide something along those lines or as you mentioned earlier, like trying to um, negotiate what would be appropriate for any sex worker that you're using for your research. But feel free to go into that point. <laughs> I know you have some some stuff to say on that. <laughs> I definitely do because academia runs on paying very little to various people. It runs on labor exploitation. And quite frankly, I've been expected to do things basically for cookies and donuts. <laughs> so <Gosh. laughs> I wish I was, I'm only half joking, Steph. <laughs> I believe you. I am, um, do it for the prestige. Uh, okay, I can't eat prestige though. <laughs> I can't pay my bills with prestige, so <laughs> I don't know what we're doing here. But a lot of times in academia, it runs not just on labor exploitation, but on volunteer labor, which granted, you pat your resume with it, so you do get something with it, and you learn valuable life lessons and make friends along the way. But (laughs) (laughs) I hope everyone can hear the sarcasm in that. (laughs) But, you know, time, time is money, and you should be compensated more materially for your time. And I think a lot of time with academics, Again, it's that assumption of, oh, people just volunteer their time. And even me sometimes, I'm like, oh, yeah, people just volunteer their time. But that's something I have to unlearn because I've been expected to volunteer (laughs) so much of my own labor in and outside of the classroom. So when working with various communities who, quite frankly, are exploited by people just waltzing in there when they are being paid or attempted exploitations when they're already being paid, it's not a good look to come in and say, well, your reward is being in my dissertation. Okay, but is it, sorry, I'm making a face. Is it a reward to being in something that while it is con- contributing academic scholarship is more often than not just gonna sit on a shelf and collect dust and not really be dispersed into the general public because academia loves to gatekeep too behind a paywall. Oh my gosh, yeah. True. So, so um, yeah. So so That's so. Interesting. I mean, you know, you're high, you're valuing yourself a bit higher there. Maybe I want to be in your dissertation. <laughs> so, so it's really important, I think, to come to people respectfully, making mm-hmm. sure that they know, like, you really don't want to take up too much of their time, and if you are working reciprocally, 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 <laughs> then. <laughs> do value that time so making sure they feel like their time is being valued and that they're being compensated in some way again money is best do not make promises you can't keep i think in academia also sometimes people come in and they're like oh yeah we have this this and this already but then when you actually look at it it's like two hamsters and a squirrel (laughs) there's nothing here but like an empty hamster ball and some food pellets what are you talking about so (laughs) sorry again from personal experience but make sure you have all, at least monetarily or reciprocal wise in terms of like collaborations and stuff, make sure you have everything set and ready because you can't just go in and be like, oh yeah, we don't have the money. 
because that's how I guess the academy operates because it also operates on the grant system. And for anyone who's had to apply for a grant, it is not, it's a lot of work for something that quite frankly, isn't a guarantee. (laughs) And and you kind of have to make promises months in advance before, or the best you can before you get the money. So yeah. So don't over promise and make sure you're very transparent up front. And if they want to work with you, then that's great. If they don't, that's also okay. But just make sure like, when I say come with money, please come with money because as much as like, I can't tell you stuff. If I could collaborate with the world, I would, but money (laughs) and if anyone, and if, you know, not to shamelessly plug here, but if anyone wants to collaborate with me, I'm more than happy. I would love to have more voices and different experiences on my own blog and through collaborations that way. But again, like people should be paid and I don't always have the money to do that. Totally. People don't always have the money to do that. So it's, it's really important that you come with the money and, or if you can't come with the money, make sure it's a reciprocal time somewhere, you know, yeah, <laughs> like just, totally. just something, something. You know, like I never even like when it, when I first had this idea for the episode and our centralized topics, like I didn't realize that there would be so many parallels with sex work in academia. Like even within this example that you have, like like funding, obviously, <laughs> like people think that like, like I mean, just an example when I'm at the club, like people want to hang out with me outside my work hours and want to take me out for lunch or something, but like, or take me out for coffee or something. And like, that does not pay my bills, you know? And like, now you're undervaluing my time. You you think it's for free? <laughs> like, it doesn't really work that way. So like, it's this whole conversation with, with you um, has been really, really eye-opening. And like, again, hopefully has shed light to some do's and don'ts <laughs> that you should be, you know, like in, in your own practices of how you conduct research, um, how you're approaching people, uh, especially sex workers within this community or any other kind of marginalized community. So this has been super great. I, I know like the last kind of point too we wanted to talk about um, kind of aligning yourself or getting involved with um, organizations that – you know, benefit sex workers or are for sex worker rights. Um, because I know that you also uh, volunteer time with some organizations as well where you are based out of. Do you want to quickly go into that before we head into some Q&A? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, well, I haven't had the opportunity yet to do any like volunteer work with mm. these organizations yet, but I am working on a couple of projects. Ooh. So I'm not going to spoil them, but I would very much – love love being sent my way patrons and podcast <laughs> listeners that this will get off the ground because i'm very very i'm very very happy about it and i'm very very excited about it and i think it's gonna be really really good so i will take all the love i won't take your money but i'll take your love <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah so when it comes to getting involved with these organizations i wish i could say i had more of a structured thing to it or that oh this is what you should do i kind of was just like Hi. <laughs> Want to collab? <laughs> you know, it took, it took a while. It, it worked. <laughs> I mean, with you, it did, and I'm I'm so glad. Oh my god, you were like human sunshine. <laughs> you were fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, 
yeah, just making sure you're respectful in your email and not making it about like, well, I'm available. I, cause I've been on sex worker Twitter and I know the thing that gets some of the sex workers on Twitter is people, especially certain researchers coming to them and going, Oh, I would like to work with you. Blah, 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 blah. I'm available this time, this time, and this time. No, 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 no. You ask when they mm. are available. Yeah, you, totally. You, that's, if that's what I've learned. You say, Hey, is this okay for you? <laughs> when no. are you, if you would like to, are you available? Not, this is when I'm available. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. You're no. not doing us a favor. We're doing you the favor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. So you, you do it like that. And I wish I could say there was a set formula for it. But honestly, I kind of just emailed and, see, and saw what happened. Um, I would say maybe in your emails, don't get like too specific, completely outlining your plan, because then it goes back to the yes or no thing I talked about earlier. But I would say specific enough that they don't just think you're a random trying to infiltrate the community or exploit <laughs> their time. Just, That's you know, true. or just say, you know, I would like to work with you on something. Maybe give like a like a synopsis, like a one or two sentence on your idea. And, you know, ask, you know, say we can continue talking here or if you would like a, a quick phone or a video call. And of course, as always, thank them for their time, which is what I do in every email. And if sometimes people don't answer and that's okay, it's okay because they get plenty of emails like this on the daily. And I don't blame you for not wanting to deal with researchers because I don't want to either. (laughs) (laughs) And then sometimes you do get an answer back and that's great. And sometimes you don't and that's okay. Yeah. Totally. It'll be okay either way. That's a great like attitude to have about it too, because like, as you mentioned, like there's so many people trying to infiltrate our community and we are quite protective are about our community as well. So um, the reason I responded to you is because of how eloquently like you contacted me. And I was like, okay, it's, it's not just some rando person, not some <laughs> creep dude or something <laughs> behind the computer. So um, I would say like words definitely do matter in terms of like how you're conveying yourself and how you're communicating. So that everything you said to me, like basically what you outlined here is exactly what you said in your message. So it works and sometimes it doesn't work. And sometimes we're just busy and we just don't have the capacity to take on new projects or be involved with anything else. And there's, do not get offended by that. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and it's yeah. okay. You know, our academics out there, we know what being busy looks like. We know what not answering an email for two months at a time looks like. You can't be being all offended when it's happening to you. (laughs) Grain of salt and all that. (laughs) Well, Ivania, I think it's time for a couple questions from the audience. If we can move on to that, which I think is really cool. It's just two questions that came in, but I think they're also really big questions as well. So why don't we do that? Um, Question number one is, in your research, how have you been able to get in contact with sex workers? Oh, well, actually, in my research, I haven't been able to yet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. For the blog, I have. But for my research, I haven't. And I've actually kept that purposeful. It may change as the writing goes along. I mean, the dissertation process, the writing itself can take two to three years. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, my gosh. I, I know. I must be a masochist because <laughs> I've signed up for quite the time here, haven't I? Um, <laughs> but, you know, I haven't really had a chance 
yet. As my, I would love to if the opportunity arises, but I haven't really had a chance yet to do that with my research specifically. And in particular, as a historian, I, for my dissertation, at least right now, I'm very much looking at descriptions of sex workers in the archive and sex workers' voices in the archive and sort of how the city itself is shaped by what we can find in the archive and, and especially something called like liminal spaces, so spaces in between spaces, so trying to find where sex workers fit and how they shape the city within the space within a space. It's not very well developed right now because I'm still working on it. That's but okay. because I'm workshopping that idea, I'm just kind of going through a lot of archival sources, which is all well, great and good. And because being a historian and depending on what you study, you may not ever have to interact with people. But um, yeah, I think it might change if someone is willing who, who would like to work with me. Um, depending on maybe I can find someone to contact either through some of the archives I'm looking at. But again, I think the same thing would apply as within my research, if I am going to be reaching out to people, probably to tell them exactly what I'm doing. Um, probably with this, I would be more specific to say, hey, this is my thesis in particular. Um, just because I don't want to say more set, but it is going to be more set and it's not necessarily going to be, I don't want to say, I mean, I definitely want their voices and their input in there, but not a collaborative project in the same way I would do it as I would do on the blog. Um, right. But, you know, say, yeah, so I would, you know, definitely just approach them, tell them what I'm doing, maybe a little bit more specifically ask them if they would like to maybe do an interview or if I could pick their brain for a bit. And of course, hopefully pay them for their time. When it comes to things like this, usually it's like, oh, we can talk over coffee, but if I could, I'd probably use some of my grant money to be like, yeah, hey, <laughs> I can pay you for a little bit of time. Yeah, I mean, like so with some of the mastery students and PhD students that I've worked with personally, like they were recommended to me with some of the professors that I've guest lectured in in some of the universities because like I know that some of them and some of the topics that we've worked on in the past – it's been really difficult for them to get in touch with like actual sex workers because one, like I was saying like how our community is really protective and like how, who we're giving this Intel to. So sometimes it's really hard um, to get that in first of all, but like this person, um, the one I was recently working with also had like, you know, some honorariums that they were able to, uh, they had a budget and stuff um, that they were able to compensate um, these sex workers for the time. So I think that was a really, really great approach to do that and to involve them within the research. So just an FYI. But another cool question. Oh, sorry. Do you have one more thing to say there? <laughs> oh, yeah, I was going to say, I kind of purposely, as much as my training informs the blog, I kind of purposely do keep my work separate from the blog, just because mm -hmm. for me personally, I found it really hard to reconcile the way academia does things with the way I want to do my activism. Mm -hmm. So I purposely try to separate them just because I don't want to academia up something I find really important <laughs> and really care about. Not that there aren't, as you as you well know, plenty of academics who have been able to successfully bridge the two. I just think as of right now in my career, I'm still grappling with that. So mm -hmm. not to say I wouldn't involve 
sex workers again in my dissertation if anyone would very much have me but I think my advocacy in my blog is probably where I want to make the most change that way and it's okay to do it like that and who knows maybe I'll end up changing my mind completely later but um I'm just having yeah. difficulty reconciling the way academia does everything and the way I yeah. want to like treat human beings as human beings <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a fine, fine line that you kind of had to tiptoe along. And it seems like you're really hyper aware of that. And I admire that. That's, that's huge. But with that being said, there is one more question that came in from the audience as well, Ivania. So um, the question is, why do you think sex work is such a hot topic for people to quote unquote study? Or where do you think this notion came from? Hmm, that is a very good question. Yeah. And I think it probably, the old adage goes, world's oldest profession, world's yeah. spiciest profession. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as long as people have been exchanging goods, services for sexual services, it's always, I think, to varying degrees, caught varying levels of attention. Um, of course, there are always exceptions to that, but as far as I've been able to study, it's always kind of been a hot button topic. <laughs> totally. And I think in particular, it's something that while you would think it would be taboo, I think it is in many respects still taboo in academia, certain mm -hmm. topics of sex work. And in particular, I don't think it could be wrong, but I don't think in a lot of spaces, unless you're pretty well established in and of yourself, it's even still acceptable to say that like, hey, I'm a sex worker and a professor, or hey, I'm a sex worker and a student. <laughs> right. I think we're still in a place where there is still much stigma around that, unless you can put like two degrees of separation between you and your quote subjects. <clears throat> That's what we say, subjects, which is so dehumanizing and gross. And it's like, we're not studying plants. <laughs> Don't make that word. <laughs> like, we're talking with people. They're not subjects. They're not lab experiments, <laughs> despite <laughs> the long history of researchers treating particularly Black and Indigenous bodies in at the field of anthropology and medicine, quite literally as specimens because of racism, because of eugenics. <laughs> so that's loaded. But, <laughs> yeah. So because of that, like, research is, can be a very dirty word for specific communities. But I think sex work does tend, at least some aspects of it, does tend to draw a lot of people to it because you do have that sector of academia who are trying to like destigmatize. So of course you have them, but then you also have within that sector too. In academia, you try to sell yourself. Let's be real. It's, it's a market. You commodify your ideas. You commodify the pain either of yourself or others. And then you make profit off of that. Well, not you directly. The university does because they make money. <laughs> but <laughs> And guess what sells? Sex sells. Honestly, whenever I've spoken about my work at conferences, it's always gotten the oohs and ahs. Not that, not that I sensationalize it. I mean, for Christ's sake, I talk about the downtown east side in the 80s and 90s. That is a rough place and that should not be sensationalized in the least but i talk about it and people are like oh sex work and you'll notice a lot of titles too a lot of the things i've read um either have been more contemporary research reports so looking at you know condom use amongst like i don't know um 
certain sector of the industry. So like doing more more data that way. But the other titles I've seen a lot of it goes, oh, Sin City, Sex in the City, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, catchy, catchy titles like that to get published yeah. and then, you know, to get your name out there and to get the notoriety and of course to bring in more funding from the university. Right. So it's catchy topics. And quite frankly, even when you're talking about like, let's say even different aspects of the trade, like stripping. Yeah. or porn that as much as I hate to say it in some respects can be a little bit more glamorized than oh, this work. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, I'm sure you know that those tropes you're either in need of saving or a hooker with a heart of gold. <laughs> a hooker <laughs> with a heart of gold. So it's like, oh, please forgive my language. Yeah. So something that can be, I hate to say it, sanitized and sensationalized enough, just just to be scandalous enough that you can kind of like sell it, but not scandalous enough that you have to do something about it. <laughs> right, it's a clickbaity. Yeah. <laughs> it's like marketing. Yeah, yeah. It's essentially you're making a YouTube thumbnail, <laughs> kind yeah. of, but with, with with your paper. You know, <laughs> you're making a video thumbnail, but with your paper, and you're kind of just like, I mean, you would think because there are some pearl clutchers. I mean, there's entire sectors of feminism that are sex work exclusionary. Um, we don't talk about them here. <laughs> well, that's a whole other topic too. I mean, maybe I'll do an episode on that. <laughs> but Please. They're yeah. everywhere. <laughs> so something to say. But, you know, entire sectors of feminism that are sex work exclusionary. So you would think like, oh, you know, we really necessarily wouldn't be a topic, but also you can sensationalize sex fairly easily. As I'm sure you know, especially in media. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, those are really great observations, and I would probably share a lot of the sentiments as well, for sure. But, Ivania, before I let you go, where can we find you? Oh, yes. So you probably won't find me many places because <laughs> I'm a woman <laughs> of mystery. <laughs> <laughs> But where you can find me is on Twitter. I'm always high horsing on there about something. <laughs> so my Twitter handle is at TSW historian. So at TSW historian. And my website is just thesexworkhistorian.org. If you follow me on Twitter, shout out to me, follow me on Twitter. It's a time over there. <laughs> um, then I also have a link to my blog up on there. But the website is quite literally just thesexworkhistorian.org. And I highly recommend reading some of my most recent blog posts. And of course, once this collab is up, I highly recommend watching it as well in conjunction with the podcast episode, because I think we paralleled each other a lot, despite our, well, my collab with you being filmed almost like a month ago now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's in there for sure. So... <laughs> Perfect. So everyone be sure to give Ivania a nice like, a nice follow. Uh, be sure to read her blog. Lots of really great nuggets on there. And for everyone else listening at home, it's new episodes every single Sunday that drops at midnight in my time, Pacific Standard Time. And yeah, uh, don't forget to like, share, comment. Um, comment. Now I'm talking about my YouTube. Don't, for don't forget to rate five stars and write a review is what I'm trying to say. 
and subscribe to the show. And if you're interested in supporting monetary, monetarily, uh, it's patreon.com slash stripped by Sia. And that's pretty much it for today. Thanks, folks. Thanks for listening. And thanks so much, Ivani, for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to Stripped by Sia. Hosted, produced, and edited by Steph Sia. Music by Ted D. Graphic design by Maria Bellandarama. And photography by Ian Davern. <laughs>